Chapter Sixteen of the Talisman. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lizzie Driver. The Talisman by Sir Walter Scott. Chapter Sixteen. Tis not her sense, for sure in that there's nothing more than common, and all her wit is only chat, like any other woman. Song. The high-born Berengaria, daughter of Sanchez, king of Navarre, and the queen consort of the heroic Richard, was accounted one of the most beautiful women of the period. Her form was slight, though exquisitely moulded. She was graced with a complexion not common in her country, a profusion of fair hair, and features so extremely juvenile as to make her look several years younger than she really was though in reality she was not above one-and-twenty. Perhaps it was under the consciousness of this extremely juvenile appearance that she affected, or at least practised, a little childish petulance and wilfulness of manner, not unbefitting, she might suppose, a youthful bride, whose rank and age gave her a right to have her fantasies indulged and attended to. She was by nature perfectly good-humoured, and if her due share of admiration and homage, in her opinion a very large one, was duly resigned to her, no one could possess her better temper or more friendly disposition. But then, like all despots, the more power that was voluntarily yielded to her, the more she desired to extend her sway. Sometimes, even when all her ambition was gratified, she chose to be a little out of health and a little out of spirits and physicians had to toil their wits to invent names for imaginary maladies, while her ladies racked their imagination for new games, new headgear, and new court scandal, to pass away those unpleasant hours, during which their own situation was scarce to be greatly envied. Their most frequent resource for diverting this malady was some trick or piece of mischief practised upon each other, and the good queen, in the buoyancy of her reviving spirit, was, to speak truth, rather too indifferent whether the frolics thus practised were entirely befitting her own dignity, or whether the pain which those suffered upon whom they were inflicted was, not beyond the proportion of pleasure which she herself derived from them. She was confident in her husband's favour, in her high rank, and in her supposed powers to make good, whatever such pranks might cost others. In a word, she gambled with the freedom of a young lioness, who is unconscious of the weight of her own paws when laid on those whom she sports with. The Queen Berengaria loved her husband passionately, but she feared the loftiness and roughness of his character, and as she felt herself not to be his match in intellect, was not much pleased to see that he would often talk with Edith Plantagenet in preference to herself, simply because he found more amusement in her conversation a more comprehensive understanding, and a more noble cast of thoughts and sentiments than his beautiful consort exhibited. Berengaria did not hate Edith on this account, far less mediate her any harm. For, allowing for some selfishness, her character was, on the whole, innocent and generous. But the ladies of her train, sharp-sighted in such matters, had for some time discovered that a poignant jest at the expense of the Lady Edith, was a specific 
for relieving her grace of England's low spirits, and the discovery saved their imagination much toil. There was something ungenerous in this, because the Lady Edith was understood to be an orphan, and though she was called Plantagenet, and the fair maid of Anjou, and admitted by Richard to certain privileges only granted to the royal family, and held her place in the circle accordingly, yet few knew, and none acquainted with the court of England ventured to ask, in what exact degree of relationship she stood to the court de Lyon. She had come with Eleanor, the celebrated Queen Mother of England, and joined Richard at Messina, as one of the ladies destined to attend on Berengaria, whose nuptials then approached. Richard treated his kinswoman with much respectful observance, and the Queen made her her most constant attendant, and, even despite of the petty jealousy which we have observed, treated her generally with suitable respect. The ladies of the household had, for a long time, no further advantage over Edith, than might be afforded by an opportunity of censuring a less artfully disposed head attire or an unbecoming robe for the lady was judged to be inferior in these mysteries. The silent devotion of the Scottish knight did not indeed pass unnoticed. His liveries, his cognizance, his feats of arms, his mottoes and devices, were nearly watched, and occasionally made the subject of a passing jest. But then came the pilgrimage of the queen and her ladies to Engaddi, a journey which the queen had undertaken under a vow for the recovery of her husband's health, and which she had been encouraged to carry into effect by the Archbishop of Tyre for a political purpose. It was then, and in the chapel at the holy place, connected from above with a Carmelite nunnery, from beneath with the cell of the anchorite, that one of the Queen's attendants remarked that secret sign of intelligence which Edith had made to her lover and failed not instantly to communicate it to her majesty. The queen returned from her pilgrimage, enriched with this admirable recipe against dullness, or ennui, and her train was at the same time augmented by a present of two wretched dwarfs from the dethroned queen of Jerusalem, as deformed and as crazy, the excellent of that unhappy species, as any queen could have desired. One of Berengaria's idle amusements had been to try the effect of the sudden appearance of such ghastly and fantastic forms on the nerves of the knight when left alone in the chapel. But the jest had been lost by the composure of the Scot and the interference of the anchorite. She had now tried another, of which the consequences promised to be more serious. The ladies again met after Sir Kenneth had retired from the tent, and the queen, at first little moved by Edith's angry expostulations, only replied to her by upbraiding her prudery, and by indulging her wit at the expense of the garb, nation, and above all the poverty of the knight of the leopard, in which she displayed a good deal of playful malice, mingled with some humour, until Edith was compelled to carry her anxiety to her separate apartment. But when, in the morning, a female whom Edith had entrusted to make inquiry brought word that the standard was missing, and its champion vanished. She burst into the Queen's apartment, and implored her to rise and proceed to the King's tent without delay, and use her powerful mediation to prevent the evil consequences of her jest. 
the queen, frightened in her turn, cast, as is usual, the blame of her own folly on those around her, and endeavoured to comfort Edith's grief, and appease her displeasure, by a thousand inconsistent arguments. She was sure no harm had chanced. The knight was sleeping, she fancied, after his night-watch. What though, for fear of the king's displeasure, he had deserted with the standard? It was but a piece of silk, and he but a needy adventurer. Or, if he was put under warding for a time, she would soon get the king to pardon him. It was but waiting to let Richard's mood pass away. Thus she continued talking thick and fast, and heaping together all sorts of inconsistencies, with the vain expectation of persuading both Edith and herself that no harm could come of a frolic which in her heart she now bitterly repented. But while Edith in vain strove to intercept this torrent of idle talk, she caught the eye of one of the ladies who entered the Queen's apartment. There was death in her look of affright and horror, and Edith, at the first glance of her countenance, had sunk at once on the earth, had not strong necessity, and her own elevation of character, enabled her to maintain at least external composure. "'Madam,' she said to the Queen, "'Lose not another word in speaking, but save life. "'If, indeed,' she added, her voice choking as she said it, "'life may yet be saved.' "'It may, it may,' answered the Lady Callista. "'I have just heard that he has been brought before the King. "'It is not yet over. "'But,' she added, bursting into a vehement flood of weeping, "'in which personal apprehensions had some share, it will soon, unless some course be taken. I will vow a golden candlestick to the holy sepulchre, a shrine of silver to Our Lady of Engadi, a pole worth one hundred Byzants to St. Thomas of Orthez, said the Queen in extremity. Up, up, madam, said Edith. Call on the saints if you list, but be on your best saint. Indeed, madam, said the terrified attendant. The Lady Edith speaks truth. Up, madam, and let us to King Richard's tent, and beg the poor gentleman's life. I will go, I will go instantly, said the Queen, rising and trembling excessively, while her woman, in as great confusion as herself, were unable to render her those duties which were indispensable to her levy. Calm, composed, only pale as death, Edith ministered to the Queen with her own hand, and alone supplied the deficiencies of her numerous attendants. "'How you wait, wenches!' said the Queen, not able even then to forget frivolous distinctions. "'Suffer ye the Lady Edith to do the duties of your attendants? Seest thou, Edith, they can do nothing. I shall never be attired in time. We will send for the Archbishop of Tyre, and employ him as a mediator.' "'Oh, no, no!' exclaimed Edith. You have done the evil. Do you confer the remedy? I will go. I will go, said the Queen. But if Richard be in his mood, I dare not speak to him. He will kill me. Yet go, gracious madam, said the Lady Callista, who best knew her mistress's temper. Not a lion, in his fury, could look upon such a face and form, and retain so much an angry thought, 
far less a true love knight like the royal Richard, to whom your slightest word would be a command. Dost thou think so, Calista? said the queen. Ah, thou little knowest, yet I will go. But see you here, what means this? You have bedensed me in green, a colour he detests. Lo you, let me have a blue robe, and search for the ruby carcanet, which was part of the king of Cyprus's ransom. It is either in the steel casket or somewhere else. This, and a man's life at stake, said Edith indignantly. It passes human patience. Remain at your ease, madam. I will go to King Richard. I am a party interested. I will know if the honour of a poor maiden of his blood is to be so far tampered with that her name shall be abused to train a brave gentleman from his duty, bring him within the compass of death and infamy, and make at the same time the glory of England a laughing-stock to the whole Christian army. At this unexpected burst of passion, Berengaria listened with an almost stupefied look of fear and wonder. But as Edith was about to leave the tent, she exclaimed, though faintly, "'Stop her! Stop her!' "'You must indeed stop, noble Lady Edith,' said Callista, taking her arm gently. "'And you, royal madam, I am sure will go, and without further dallying. "'If the Lady Edith goes alone to the king, he will be dreadfully incensed.' nor will it be one life that will stay his fury. "'I will go, I will go,' said the queen, yielding to necessity. And Edith reluctantly halted to wait her movements. They were now as speedily as she could have desired. The queen hastily wrapped herself in a large loose mantle, which covered all inaccuracies of a toilet. In this guise, attended by Edith and her women, and preceded and followed by a few officers and men-at-arms, she hastened to the tent of her lion-like husband. End of chapter 16